we've got to set some expectations and we have to establish a level of trust. You have to know whether I believe in you or not. If I don't believe in you, then we're probably not going to set, we're not going to create that bond of trust. So in this scenario, you believe in me? I believe in you. I'm going to tell you I believe in you. That's the first conversation we're going to have. Look, I believe in you. I know you can do this. And here's why I know you can do this. Here are the things that I've watched you do. And here's why I'm impressed. Welcome to the Rising Leader Podcast, where being a high achiever doesn't necessarily equate to being an effective leader. Let's check to see if you're in the right place. If you're rising through the ranks of your organization so fast that your leadership skills need to grow as fast as your responsibilities, you're in the right place. If it seems you need different skills to lead your team or lead from within a group of talented, competitive peers, you're in the right place. If you're looking to become a trusted advisor to the CEO, you are definitely in the right place. So now that we know that you're in the right place, enjoy today's conversation. Before we begin the show, I have something for you. The Rising Leader Handbook is going to be published in October of this year, but you don't have to wait. If you go to my website, www.markjsilverman.com, click the red button, you can get an advanced copy of the executive summary of the Rising Leader Handbook. In the same place, you can get a copy of Only Tens. Love to get your feedback. Now on with the show. So earlier this year, I had one of my favorite conversations with Michael D. Robinson. You may have remembered that interview. What a wonderful guy and what a powerful leader, all wrapped in one. And I love that when people can actually, you know, navigate the corporate world and triumph and and you know, all knees and elbows, but also lift up others, that that just changes the game for me. And I love talking to people like that. So I asked Michael, who should I talk to next? Who would be a really good person to teach leadership and humanity at the same time? He didn't hesitate. He said Larry Quinlan. And so I did some research on him and, you know, this is just such a genuine good man who has reached the heights of success. So humanity and leadership and success all wrapped in one. So you want to learn from him. Officially, this is my favorite introduction I've, I've found of Larry is Hall of Fame CIO Larry Quinlan is recognized as one of the most successful IT leaders of all time as global CIO of Deloitte. He led 10,000 IT professionals across 175 countries and drove significant revenue as a lead client partner for several of Deloitte's large global clients. So not only did he lead a team, he was also part of the part of the business, which some people in those positions have trouble doing. He's on the board of directors of dozens of companies, ServiceNow, where I work, UBS. He is constantly in demand to mentor and advise C-suite executives, and he always gives back to his community, to people who are just starting out. And that's what I love about Larry. Larry, thanks for being here. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Michael Robinson is such, a, such an incredible individual, a great friend, and anything he tells me to do, I do. When, when, I, was, when I was done with the podcast, I was like, how do I make him my best friend? I love this guy. But, you know, people, people he still has a job. So he, <laughs> he doesn't have time for all these extra, extra friendships. So when, when I read back that, that bio of you, right? It's pretty, it's pretty stellar. I'm curious, how did that Larry Quinlan get built? What's the, what's the origin story for that? I asked myself that a lot and, and reflected on it. And at Deloitte, I actually gave the speech one day, didn't realize 
the title wouldn't fit on a PowerPoint page. <laughs> but it ended up being, how does a skinny black kid from an island of 35,000 people become the global chief information officer of the world's largest professional services firm? That doesn't fit on one slide. <laughs> does that. But it really got me to thinking. And, you know, first started, I, I started on a tiny island, 35,000 people. Which island? St. Kitts. I honeymooned in uh, Nevis. Is that right? Yeah, same country. <laughs> and a foundation was built there. You know, my parents were, uh, my mother was an educator. And you know, just picture St. Kitts, small black and white television. There's only one channel. And the only good stuff comes on at 8 p.m. And at 8 p.m., my mother would walk in, turn off the TV and say, do your homework. And, you know, mom, come on, we're watching TV. Do your homework. Mom, we finished our homework. We'll do tomorrow's homework. <laughs> <laughs> and it was that regard for education that was, that was important. My dad never finished high school, but believed deeply in education. He became a serial entrepreneur. We would actually have to present our report cards at the end of each semester, and it better look good. So while he'd never finished high school, he just bought into this notion that education was just the most important thing and just insistent that, that we get it. You know, just in a, as an aside, in his 50s, he decided that he too needed education, that his lifelong dream after starting about 10 businesses was to become a lawyer. Oh, my goodness. And he went and did a number of prerequisite courses, ended up going to law school and practiced law until the day he died. So that's the foundation. Sometimes I get a little bit full of myself. And I just have to think back about the foundation I was given, the expectations that were set, and realize that, yeah, I'm sure I worked hard, but I am a product of my environment as well. Mm -hmm. So, so tell me about who left the island. What education did you do? What, and then what jobs did you take along the way? Had you climbed the ladder? So needed to go to college. In our family, there wasn't a question of if you were going to college. That wasn't even entertained. I told you about my parents. It was where were you going to college? And I ended up going to the University of the West Indies, the preeminent educational organization in, in the Caribbean and spent a year in Barbados, two years in Trinidad, some of the fondest <laughs> years of my life. In fact, I'm going back to Trinidad in September for a class reunion. We still have a WhatsApp group, that wow. kind of thing. And the whole idea at the time was I was going to do management. So I did industrial management as, as a degree finished that, went back to St. Kitts and worked with my dad, but quickly realized that I wanted another degree. I wanted to, to get a little bit more seasoned. I decided to go do an MBA in New York. Didn't know exactly how I was going to fund it. My dad was great enough to, to give me the first semester's tuition. But once I got there, it was a question of working. I, I worked as a teller in a bank. I worked as a telemarketer calling you over dinner, trying to sell you stuff, graduate research assistant, anything I could do 
to get through school, but, but I made it. And I think I made it because I was accustomed to working. One of the things I neglected to say as part of the foundation, you know, my dad's serial entrepreneur activities, he got us all involved in them. So my dad leased the gas station. Sunday mornings, I was down there pumping gas. <laughs> he ended up with some cottages that he rented out to tourists. 5 a.m. out there cleaning, painting, <laughs> repairing, that kind of thing. Ah, the worst was my dad decided to invest in a poultry farm. <laughs> <laughs> the smell of that still haunts me. <laughs> this was not modern agriculture or livestock you know, with machines, this was by hand cleaning the cages. <laughs> but, you know, that foundation, as much as I joked with them that they had spoiled me for life, really set the stage for me to be able to get through graduate school to work, etc. In graduate school, I discovered a love for technology, and I actually spent an extra six months working on a number of technology courses. I remember taking every dime that I had saved and going out and buying a Radio Shack Tandy 1000 uh, computer. And I was intrigued by this. And I was intrigued not so much by building them or even just programming them. I was intrigued by the ability to solve business problems. I'm curious what what year what what, what time frame is this? Cuz I remember when I was 17, I was making the punch cards for the admission office of Stony Brook University. Like I was doing punch cards. Well, you know, what year was this? So I was at Baruch College, City University of New York doing my MBA from 1984 to 86. So I had a combination of punch cards being at the well, not so much the punch cards, but more the the computer tape. But we're, we're, we're about the same age. We're, we're close to the same age. That makes yeah. sense. So being at the lab, the computer lab until midnight, trying to make this program work right because <laughs> it couldn't take it home. But I really discovered this love for technology. And when I was graduating, went through the placement office, I had done reasonably well in school and it wasn't actually that difficult to find a job. And I ended up with a job on Wall Street uh, selling paper. So I accepted the job, of course, because it paid more money than I ever thought I would make in my entire life. But as the summer wore on, there was just a little voice inside me that said, you don't want to sell paper. You aren't going to sell paper. You should do something about it. And of course, I'm thinking, I'm going to make real money. There is no way I'm not going to go take this job. I don't have another job. And as the summer wore on, I kept procrastinating. I wouldn't face up to it until finally I woke up one morning and realized, you know, it is not my destiny to go do this. I am not looking forward to this. I am dreading the first day of work. I really need to do something. So I bit the bullet, called up the school. They were, of course, completely pissed off. Don't blame them. I was really making the school look. I had accepted an offering. It was expected that I would show up for work. And here was I saying that I wouldn't. So, you know, they slammed the phone down. I really didn't blame them. I kind of expected that. And then I had to call the company. And they were not happy. They had kept a spot open for me all summer. And here was I not showing up. But there was this voice inside me that said, this wasn't right. This, mm. this is not what you should do. So now here I am, 
I got to go find a job. I sent out hundreds of resumes and pounded the pavement on dozens of interviews. And I finally found a job at a small company in New Jersey, and it was tailor-made for me. It was running database operations in support of a fundraising organization. So it was really using the database, using the technology to actually solve a business problem. And I thought, that's what I wanted. I don't want to just go code. In fact, I didn't apply for any of those jobs. Hmm. I didn't want to, to build the computers. I wanted to be a business technologist. That's how I saw myself. And I found the job. The only problem is it was paying 50% of what the job selling paper was going to pay. But I didn't hesitate. The voice inside said, that's the one. That's the right job. It's a small company. Nobody's ever heard of it. It's half the pay, but that's the job. And I went and I did it. And I woke up every morning relieved that mm. that's what I had picked. I woke up every morning wanting to do an amazing job. And I learned something. A, got to listen to the little voice inside sometimes. B, got to trust yourself sometimes. And you've got to take that path that doesn't seem obvious at times. Now, question, your parents seem to be the, you know, educated, get a good job, take care of business, right? And then maybe, you know, follow your, your bliss. But you, you were able to listen to that voice and go against conventional wisdom, you know, even taking the job and then looking for what you wanted. How did you know to trust that? I don't know. I think it was part of my development. I think my parents had given me a great foundation and it was up to me now to use that to, you know, to make the right judgments. How exactly one does that? I don't know. It is partly instinctive. It's partly trusting oneself and it's partly being the beneficiary family foundation that I think to this day, served me an incredibly good stead. So, so I did. I trusted myself, and it it really worked out. But I had a few more lessons to learn. After a couple of years there, management changed, and realized that new leadership was going in a direction that that I wasn't sure I wanted to go in. And it was a pivotal moment fight against new leadership. I could disengage and just do the bare minimum to, to, you know, to hang on, but decided to leave. Didn't have another job yet and went about the process of doing that. But it was, it was a really interesting moment for me when I analyzed why I was going to leave. I actually thought dispassionately that the new leader had the right to actually put in place a direction that I didn't approve of. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and rather than being a blocking person in the organization, I also thought that I had the right to leave and that both things were not mutually <laughs> exclusive, that both were fine. I didn't want to go down that path, but I shouldn't block them. And therefore, I decided simply to leave on good terms. And that's exactly what I did. And that was another lesson for me 
you know, early on, I used to have this thought that people were put on this earth simply to agree with me. (laughs) (laughs) As I got older, I was disabused of this notion. (laughs) And this was, this was that first lesson, that he was a leader who just didn't agree with me. And my reaction to that was, I can't go down that path, but don't block go find your own path. And I really liked that. So I did. And again, I pounded the pavement and went and found a job. And in those days, I did it the old fashioned way. I pulled out the New York Times, I circled hundreds of jobs, I went on a bunch of interviews. And I ended up at a predecessor to to Deloitte and Touche, which was Touche Ross at the time. And that was uh, in the late 80s. And I ended up there. And it was a step back in some ways, because I was really running for a very small operation, sort of the the technology environment. And here I was going to be a systems analyst, but in a large organization. But I think instinctively, I understood that this step back was necessary, that you needed to be a small fish in a big pond rather than being the big fish in a very, very tiny uh, pond. But I also learned during the interview process that this was a bit of a test, that the organization was going through this discussion as to whether or not they should move into distributed computing, which I had a background in, networking, et cetera, or whether they would go down the mid-range path. And if the mid-range path won, really, I didn't have the skill set to have a job there. So this was a bit of a setup. They really needed someone with my background. But if we didn't win this case... I could be out of a job very, very quickly. And I thought about that again. I'm like, whoa, I don't think I should do that. That's risky. I, you know, I, I got bills to pay. I live in New York City, one of the most expensive cities in the world. And again, there was this little voice inside that said, you should do this. You can do this. And I thought about it and I kept interviewing. And then I thought, you know, we can make this work. Clearly, distributed computing is the way to go. Mid-range computing has had it. It's on its last legs. If you can't make this case, Larry, you're just not as good as you keep saying you are. <laughs> Let's go do this. And again, I learned to trust that inner voice. And I learned uh, that I was interested in a challenge mm. and took the job. And long story short, we convinced the organization to go to distributed computing, putting one of the first corporate distributed email systems, built out worldwide stuff, etc. And that, again, taught me something about myself. But then a number of pivotal... What did, it teach you? What did, what did it teach you about yourself? It taught me, again, that I needed to listen to that inner voice. Conventional wisdom for me said... You can't take a job that has this much risk, that you could be out on the street looking for a job again in four months, five months. You shouldn't do that. There's always this risk averseness, this this approach, but then this inner voice says, you can do this. You've been prepared for this. You should take up this challenge. And I learned to listen to that inner voice. So leading up to all of this was this inner voice that 
that told me I needed to do an MBA, an inner voice that told me I needed to get into technology, this inner voice that told me you should join this company, you should take this risk. And, and it was, there was, I think there were a series of moments in my career leading up to this point that really allowed me to trust myself. But then I think things changed a bit. And the crux of the whole conversation about how I became global CIO began to unfold because I'm a systems analyst. It's a mm -hmm. relatively entry level job in the organization. Yeah, you you ju you just put yeah. your hands on the ladder. <laughs> exactly, and that's when things change. So a year later, we got called into a room, and the story goes like this: we got good news and we've got bad news, and the good news. Tushwas is merging with Deloitte Haskins and Cells, and we're going to be like the third largest professional services firm. Okay. For the good news, Larry, we like you. You haven't done tremendous damage here yet. We've got a leadership role for you. Okay. What's the bad news? Uh, well, we're moving our operations from New York City to Hermitage, Tennessee. And immediately I thought, I have no idea where Hermitage, Tennessee is. But there's an unspoken rule that people who live in New York City don't move to Hermitage, Tennessee. Right. So I immediately said, no, I can't do that. Uh, and I had a mentor who called me into his office. I worked for him, Ron. And he said, you know, Larry, you really ought to think about what it means to be a technology leader in the third largest professional services firm. And I thought about it and I came back with all kinds of excuses. Uh, I just bought a condo, I just did this, my family. And he mentored me without me being smart enough to ask to be mentored. And he showed me what it meant. And then he did a number of things in the organization to pave the way for me to accept this role. He was, a, he was a mentor and a champion. And a champion. And next thing I knew, I was on a plane headed to Nashville, Tennis Hermitage is a suburb of Nashville. Right. And uh, any, any good New Yorker would not know that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and I was headed to Nashville house hunting. And before I knew it, I was in a new role at Deloitte in Hermitage, Tennessee, really grateful for what he had done and the impact that he'd had on my career. What did the little voice say? Were you ignoring the little voice? Did you override the little voice? How did that factor in? I think this is where change occurred, and I'll sort of build on that. The little voice kind of got me to systems analyst at Touche. And I think there's something different that got me from there to global CIO. And I'll, I'll talk about that. But you see the first iteration of this, Ron calling me into his office and kind of teaching me about what it means to be a technology leader in a larger organization and, and the change one would need to make to do that, in this case, leaving New York City and going to a place that I'd never heard of. So that was one aspect of it. Then I did reasonably well, but after a few years, we also had a leadership change 
And I wasn't convinced again of the direction we were going in. So I decided to resign. And again, similar to my first resignation, I wanted to resign on good terms. I didn't want things to go south. So I went in, had a conversation. My story was, I really wanted to go back to New York. I miss New York. Things were going well here, etc. It was not I don't like the direction things are going, all of that stuff. Really and by the way, do you, have, do you have a family at this point? Yes. So, so, I, so, I, so your, so, so your choices really had consequences. My choices really had consequences. So I decided to do that, and my boss at the time, yeah, you know, he had a number of choices. Hey, Larry, don't let the door hit you on your way out. Hey, Larry, you're a great guy. You know. Here's a gift, uh, et cetera. His reaction to it was really interesting. What would you like to do if you stayed here? I wasn't prepared for that. So I actually went home that night and I wrote a memo. I don't think they were expecting a memo. (laughs) And it outlined two things that I thought were really interesting about Deloitte that I had an interest in. By the way, I had already accepted a job in New York. That's the second thing I did. And he arranged for a partner at Deloitte to meet with me in Atlanta and discuss what I had written in the memo. And within three or four days, they had arranged uh, for me to take on one of the things that I had written in the memo that I thought needed to be done, and that was to build a technology organization for a global consulting business that we were creating around the world. And I was so taken aback by the interest he had taken in me when I had tried to resign (laughs) and the speed with which the organization and this new partner had moved, that again, I turned down this job that I had taken in New York and decided to stay with the organization. Because I was in awe of how people had rallied to help me in this particular situation. Why do you think that? Why why do you think people gravitate towards you? I'll come to that. And come to that in a moment, because there was one more story. And that is, after being in the consulting role and becoming global CIO of our consulting business and really building it from scratch, building that organization from like five or six people to a worldwide technology organization, we decided not to spin off our technology, global consulting business like other firms did. EY and others did that. And we decided to reintegrate it into our businesses. And it seemed to me that the CIO role would be extremely different and probably not the right role for me. So once again, I decided to go look for a job. And once again, I got a call to come into the CEO's office and was having a conversation that sounded very much like an interview. And at the end of that conversation, the CEO asked me to be his CIO for the United States. 
Now think about this. I had not met him because I had been separate in our consulting business. And what would make a highly accomplished CIO, who today I consider one of my mentors still, what would make him be interested in having me in his cabinet, a person he didn't really know after a conversation? And I kind of mused on that for quite some time. And it turned out that people he really, really trusted had come to him, had introduced me to him and indicated that, you know, my role was going to change significantly and I would be looking on the outside and he really, really should talk to me, trusted those people. So here I am now three times the beneficiary of people who really decided to help me when I wasn't smart enough to ask for their help. And yet they were still motivated yeah, that's huge. Uh, to do so. And it made really made me think. And I stayed with the organization, became global CIO of all of our businesses, but really reflecting on why did people help me when sometimes I wasn't smart enough to help myself? What is it about? What is it about me? <laughs> Why would people invest in me as opposed to just playing golf or, or helping the person next to me? I think we'd have to ask them in some ways, but I think there are a number of things that come out of it. The other thing that comes out of it was, in addition to what kind of person do I need to be to inspire that kind of help, it's what's the obligation it imposes upon me to help others. Given the kind of assistance that I've been the beneficiary of throughout my entire career. So now when I feel a little bit full of myself, all I've got to do is go back and call the names of all of the people who at every pivotal moment in my career helped me, opened a door, got me through it. And I realized the answer to the question, how does a skinny black kid from an island of 35,000, become the global CIO of the world's largest professional services firm. You know, you would think I took risks. I listened to the small voice. I did big projects. I did all of those things. Sure. But the answer is people helped. People helped me when I wasn't even smart enough to ask for help. Now, people will always ask, well, why did they help you, Larry? The answer is I don't no, I can hazard some guesses. One is when I'm on your team, I'm on your team. I'll argue with mm. you. I'll, I'll give you my, my point of view. I'll do stuff. But, but at the end of the day, I'm on your team. I'm not going to backstab you. I'm not going to you know, angle for your job. That, that's that's huge, right? That, that's, that's huge in, in becoming a trusted advisor. It's speaking your truth. It's, it's having the uncomfortable conversations, but also knowing that I'm in... I'm your ride or die, right? Like that, having those things are invaluable to becoming a trusted advisor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, second, I understand that part of my job is to get it right. And I have to take responsibility for that. You know, I grew up playing cricket, baseball's the equivalent. You get a certain number of at bats and you got to take some swings. If you don't swing at the ball, you're not 
you're not going to accomplish anything. <laughs> but if you play it safe, you're not going to accomplish anything. If you swing at everything, you're going to be out all the time. So you get a certain number of at-bats. And you got to get a great batting average. You can't make excuses for it. You got to swing at some balls and you got to hit the right <laughs> percentage of them. And you're responsible for that. And you're responsible for making that happen. So why 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 were you successful when, when you got your at bat? Was it work ethic? Was it knowing the right people? Was it are you exceptional? Like what why did you succeed when you had those at bats? What do you what do you think your special sponsors? I think it's people. I believe that I found out that I really cared about the team, that I really cared about people that I got energy from talking to a bright team member in my office, in a meeting, listening to what they said, and really caring about how they felt, what they wanted to do, their aspirations, their lives, even if they were saving money in a 401k, <laughs> mm. that I cared. And I learned that about myself because I'm actually an introvert. So as an introvert, sometimes you end up thinking that that's not you. And I actually found that, yeah, I'm an introvert, but that has nothing to do with being an introvert. I really, really do care about people. You know, there's a I'm, I'm, I'm a rabid introvert myself. Right. Uh, and and what I know, and, and I don't really like people. I don't like, glo globally, I don't like people. But persons, like when I meet people, like if 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 I'm in your life, I'm in your life forever and whatever you need, I, I, I'm there. Right. But as far as that introversion thing, it is such an interesting thing to navigate. All right. And I think I don't know who to ascribe the saying to, but but people don't care how much, you know, until they know how much you care. Right? Tom Mendoza, who was the president of NetApp, says exactly the same thing on every, in every conversation. Right. And the team really rallied. The team took me through everything. The team put me on their shoulders, you know, the team made it work. They, they literally cared about our level of excellence. They literally cared about how things made me look. It was incredible to me and one of the greatest experiences of my life just interacting with with our team. And I think it was an ability to work with a team, to care about the team, to inspire a team, and to be inspired by a team that creates those at-bats. I didn't have to stand at the plate wondering if just being the world's greatest athlete was going to get me through the day. That wasn't it. I stood at the plate knowing that I had an entire team Mm -hmm. That was going to make sure that we swung at the right things, that we got the right at-bats, and that the right people would, would fluidly move in at the right times to get the right things done. And it was an incredible experience and an incredibly humbling experience to know that my career was in the hands of a lot of people and to be very comfortable with that and mm -hmm. not worry about it. To go into a room and routinely understand that I was not the smartest person in the room. And to be thrilled about that <laughs> was, was eye-opening. I go back to early in my career. 
You're a little arrogant. You're a little cocky. You want to be the smartest person in the room. You think that the role of everybody is just to agree with you and to really grow up and see people smarter than me, people who understand things that I didn't understand and pull it all together is really and truly amazing. You talked about, you know, being being a bold and, and strong leader. You have to have a strong foundation, right? To let other people be the smarter people in the room. You have to trust that, you know, the reason you're in the chair is because you have these leadership skills. You have something to add to this group of people. How did you figure out what you had to add when when you were surrounding yourself with people who were better than you? People naturally look to me for a few things. I get to ask questions. I get to challenge. I developed a way of doing that didn't make people feel small, that didn't make people feel that we were poking holes in their work when we were, (laughs) we were challenging. But you get to challenge in a way that you can still go have a beer afterwards, after work. You get to challenge in a way that they would come back a week later and say, all right, Larry, we heard you. We didn't like that conversation, but we heard you. Here's what we've come up with. And the ability to look at it and smile like, Yes, this is amazing. And have people buy into that process. A, your first effort isn't necessarily your best effort. And B, my attempt to get your best effort is in no way demeaning to you because I trust you. I know you are capable of more. And I'm not going to rip your work to shreds and go do it for you. I'm going to poke holes in it with the confidence that you can fix it. (laughs) Nice. And I think that became a hallmark of the relationship with the team that I think stood us in good stead, that allowed us to build that. There was only one weakness in it, which the team would point out regularly. And that was, I was kind of grumpy in the morning. I'm not a morning person. So the team would make sure that if they weren't sure yet of the quality of the work, or if it was the first effort, or if it was bad news, they would always show up and work with my assistant. We don't want the early morning slot on this one. Can you help us? That's funny. (laughs) It became a running joke that, okay, first thing in the morning, Larry, is it's not the right time to to have this kind of discussion. Right. All right. I I I need some help here. So I watched the first video I saw of you sitting in a diner in an interview. Uh, I immediately was like, I would, I would follow this man into battle. Like hook, line, and sinker. I fell for you. I was like, I would be on his team and I would, I would go to the mat with him at any point. Right. My question would be is, let's say I'm your direct report. I'm a director or I'm a VP and I work for you. And I'm a little rough around the edges. And my team, my team is not responding the way they would to you. How would you coach me to have more of those qualities? How would you transfer what seems to be a natural ability to you for me to be able to learn that? First thing is we've got to set, we've got to set some expectations and we have to establish a level of trust. You have to know whether I believe in you or not. If I don't believe in you, then we're probably not going to set we're not going to create that bond of trust. So in this scenario, you believe in me. 
I believe in you. I'm going to tell you, I believe in you. That's the first conversation we're going to have. Look, I believe in you. I know you can do this. And here's why I know you can do this. Here are the things that I've watched you do. And here's why I'm impressed. Now, I need you to take on this new challenge. This is new for you, or you've had some challenges with this. And here's some thoughts that I have, but I can't do your job. <laughs> I don't even know how to do your job. You know how to do your job better than I do. So I've got some thoughts from my chair that I'll pass on to you, but I have confidence that you can do this. And the other thing you need to know is you can call me. If you have a challenge, you can call me. I may not know the answer, but there are people I can reach out to who will work with you, make it happen. If we need a coach, we can do that. Mm. But it goes back to, I believe in you. And then I'll also say, but let's understand how this works. And I, I used to use this phrase, you know how they say, don't you the messenger? You just need to understand that when we go on this journey, you're going to bring me messages and I'm probably going to shoot you. <laughs> <laughs> but we haven't killed a messenger yet, so don't worry about it, okay? But don't expect that I'm just going to be all lovey-dovey and, you know, you bring me stuff. And I, no, we're human here. Mm. But you have to trust. I'm not going to kill you. But I might take a shot now and again, and we can talk about it, <laughs> Okay. And I think when we get to that level of trust, understanding, where people understand, I'm going to push, I'm going to poke, I'm going to challenge, <laughs> and sometimes my reaction isn't going to be what you thought it should be. And by the way, sometimes my reaction isn't going to be what I thought it mm -hmm. should be. But do we still trust each other at the end? Do we still believe we're working together for the same goal and that I have your best interests at heart? Even though I may have yelled at you this morning because you showed up too early in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Do you believe at the end of the day that I have your best interests at heart and that we're going to work together? And today's conversation didn't go that great. But do you believe at the end of the day, do you believe tomorrow that this is a guy you still want to work with and we want to solve this together? And that's how I thought about it. That's, that's, that's awesome. I actually have an agreement in my coaching agreement when I start with a client because I don't coach anybody I don't completely believe in. I'll turn clients down. If, if I don't 100% believe in them, I shouldn't be their coach. And one of the agreements I have is I'm going to be harsh with you. I'm going to confront with you, confront you. I'm going to say things that hurt or that are wrong, maybe even completely wrong, right? But what, what, what the agreement that we're going to have up front is that I'm in your corner, right? That, that I am only saying these things. I'm only coaching you. I'm only in this, this with you because I believe in you. So give me the benefit of the doubt and then come back at me with whatever is going on with you, right? When we sit that ground rule up, when we do hit those rough spots, we have a container to be able to disagree, to argue, to work out through some rough stuff. And uh, that's what you seem to create with your people. That's, a, that's, that's invaluable. It came from a, an understanding that people were really important. It's such a cliche and, and people say it. But I came to really understand that, that people were so important, that when I worked with other CIOs, 
their PMO looked different. Their organization structure looked different. Their adoption of the cloud was different. Their innovation structure was different. And I realized you can build any kind of IT organization you want. What's really the difference? It was people who woke up every single day trying to make something better, whether you were there or not, whether you were in the room or not. And that was humbling. That was this recognition that say whatever you want. Think about how good you think you are. This amazing strategy that it all came down to. Did you create an environment or did you help to create an environment that allowed people to go be themselves and to go be all that they could be? And people would then ask me, well, you know, how did you create an environment that made people better? Create an environment that made people better. We helped to create an environment that allowed people to be the better that they always wanted to be. Right. And in some cases, it was just removing impediments and trusting people. But again, sounds cliched, but the big learning out of this, that, that people were just absolutely the most incredible element of all of this. And it was people outperforming hmm. that, that made this really work. And sort of to put a capstone on it. I decided to retire early from Deloitte because after evaluating a number of things that I wanted to do in my next chapter, I evaluated government service, I evaluated just retiring, I evaluated board service and teaching, which had always been something, given the fact that my mother had been a teacher for 30 years. And that your dad decided to be a lawyer in his 50s. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I thought about going into teaching, but I ended up deciding that corporate board service was important to me. And as I decided to embark on this journey, I talked to a number of people and the response was overwhelming. Once again, every board that I sit up, I can tell you the name of the person who helped open a door. Mm that allowed me to go in and interview and perform, ultimately gaining that. But they took the time to open the door, to make the introduction, to say something good about me, to respond to those back channel due diligence sessions that they do when you try to get on boards. They find out who you know, and they go talk to people that they know without ever telling you it's happening. <laughs> And once again, people invested in me. People spent time doing the introductions, doing the due diligence. And once again, how did I end up on the boards I ended up? People helped me. Hmm. And I find that amazing. And one of the things I now spend time doing is trying to figure out this next chapter. How will I help others? I'm mentoring. I'm doing introductions. I'm sitting on a number of nonprofit boards, the amazing work they do, things like KIPP Charter School and, and Power and all of those. But there's still something left that I haven't identified yet, which is how can I at scale help people in a way that is at least a few percentage points <laughs> payback? 
for the way people have helped me throughout my entire career. And that's what you take from a from a resume like that you have. If that's what you're left with when someone calls you a Hall of Fame CIO, like untouchable, like this guy is the guy, and you're left with gratitude and how do I give back? That's a life well lived. And that's a next chapter that's really shaping up to be something special. I appreciate you so much. And I appreciate that Michael made this connection and that I got to spend some time with you. I really thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you. If people want to get in touch with you, LinkedIn, the best place to... Absolutely. Just send me a message on LinkedIn. I did. And he, and he, and he responded. It was, it was awesome. <laughs> Larry, thank you so much. I appreciate you. My pleasure. Take care. And to everybody else, I really appreciate your time and attention. Thank you for sticking with this really profound conversation that we had. I love you. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you for joining today's conversation. If you got value, please share the episode, give us a thumbs up, write us a review. And if there's a topic you'd like us to cover or a question that you have, send them my way. Look forward to connecting on the next episode of the Rising Leader Podcast.